Okay, so there's a story that I wanted to tell you. It's a personal story, an odd story for sure. And I work on this story for probably two weeks, rewriting, refining, tweaking. Then finally, I go into the studio. And I perform the hell out of this story if I do say so myself. Bam! And I know that you are going to love it. But then a few days later, my partner and all things Snap, the Uber producer, he wants to have a chat. Okay. First starts in talking about the old days. We've known each other since we were in school in Michigan many, many years ago. He asked me, yeah, where'd you go on that college trip with your daughter? And I start to get a little suspicious. What is it? Where's the knife? And he's like, well, I was thinking. That story you did? Yes, that story, yes. Well, that story it doesn't work. What? What do you mean that story doesn't work? And I argue, I disagree, but he knows me well enough as a friend to tell me his truth in a way that I can hear it. Like I said, we've been through some things together, he and I. One of my oldest and dearest compatriots. So he's already anticipated how I'm going to react, what I'm going to say before I even know myself. It's one of the universe's greatest gifts to have someone like that. (laughs) Not someone like that. To actually have him in my life because what if instead the person that knows you most of all better than your mama better than your spouse what if that person what if that person's not your friend at all but your enemy today in Snap Judgment we proudly present The Wedding Guest an amazing chronicle of two men with the very closest of bonds my name is from Washington please tell everyone to go away and leave you alone for the next few minutes go on ahead let them know they can wait because you're listening to Snap Dutchman Again, in Australia, a place where a refugee thought at long last he could finally stop running. In this story, it does recount real events that happened to a child soldier, graphic scenes inside a prison camp, and as such, listener discretion is advised. Ruby Schwartz has a story. In late 2004, Ayik Deng was on the road. He was driving to a church in Brisbane, a city on Australia's east coast. He'd been invited by a friend to the wedding of a South Sudanese couple. He didn't know them all that well, but he still had that kind of giddy, excited feeling you get before a wedding, which drove him to formalities he might not otherwise subscribe to. I'm not a suit person. 
So I like to wear a polo shirt, but I think I was wearing a nice button-up shirt, just for respect of the wedding. In the church, the 70 or so guests milled about, making small talk, before taking their seat on one of the wooden pews. And then the bride and the groom got married, everything went all right, people ate food and all that. It's all the Sudanese food, lamb stew, fish stew, because we are Dinka, so... It's all stew. And then at the end of the service, I was sitting to the left side of the building of the church. I was just looking around. And Ayik recognises this guy, off to the side, on his right. So he was just a few seats, he was just a few seats in front of me. He was talking to someone. He said, this guy can't be here, this, nah, no way. That's not him. I look again. You know, I just said, no, I can't be right. You know, I thought maybe something wrong with me in church. I just couldn't believe saying that this guy is gone years ago. I can't be him. He's not here. He's in Africa. He's dead. And I look again, just to double, to, just to double check, to make sure that it's him. And it was him. Honestly, just the eye was the thing I'll never forget. The look, his face never changed. After I realised it was him... My brain was about, it's just like a bomb just about to explode. I felt so angry. Ayik had always thought that if he ever came face to face with this man again, he'd kill him. But at this point, many years had passed and he was a different person now. I said, nah, this time I can do anything to him and he can't do anything to me because I'm not a kid anymore. I'm not that skinny child anymore. So what I did, I walked straight back to my car, jumped in the car, went home. While I was at home, everything started pouring back in my head. I went back to when I was a child again. When I was a child under his, you know, under his uh, power. I never went through so much pain in my life until I met Anyang. Ayik last saw this man, Anyang, about 10 years ago, when he was just a 13-year-old boy. He was living in Sudan, which at the time was experiencing its second civil war, and Ayik had just been enlisted in the Children's Army. That first day, when he arrived at the base, this sprawling encampment with tents dotted all over the red, dusty earth... I look around, children's everywhere. Everywhere. Oh, there were hundreds of them. I felt, okay, this is good. Now I'm going to get trained. I'll get my uniform, I'll get my boot, I'll get my gun. I wasn't really scared, you know. I was excited. But it didn't take long for Ayik to realise that the Children's Army wasn't what he'd expected. The training was hard. He had to train from 4am well into the afternoon's hottest hours. You run 20 metres away, 20 metres back, and if you make a little mistake, you get whipped by the trainers from the back. You know, there might be two of them or three, and you just run, you know. You just, you just have to get a ride or you pay for it. There was very little food to go around, usually just ground maize or corn if they were lucky. I was just sick of the, the punishment you get from training. But the thing is, once you join the Children's Army, there's no just packing up and leaving. 
You're stuck. Once you join, yeah, that's it. The only way to get out is to escape. So Ayuk started asking himself, how can I get out of here? Because I can't go back to my auntie because my auntie's hours away toward Ethiopia. He also couldn't go back to his village in Sudan. Unless you go as a group and you got guns, yeah. But if you're a child, nah, no way you're going to make it. His only option was this nearby refugee camp called Zima, about two kilometres down the road. Because we're in the Ethiopian jungle. There's nowhere to run. You can only run there. So one night, under the blanket of darkness, clutching a metal plate and rocks for protection, Ayik ran out of the camp towards the dirt road to Dima. From leopards, from hyenas, lions, I didn't think I could make it. He kept looking back, expecting to be caught or attacked. But 15 minutes later, panting, sweating, the refugee camp was finally inside. He'd made it. And then a few weeks later, the refugee camp, the army come at night time. They get a bunch of grass, light it up, they walk into this little hut, light it looking for boys. Every few days, the bosses from the children's army camp would do a sweep through the refugee camp, looking for children that might have escaped. During one of those sweeps, they found Ayik. They pulled him out of the hut he was sleeping in. And they caught me and took me back to the camp, to the, to the Red Army camp. We got thrown into this, it was a makeshift little prison. It made out of branches of tree. And during the day, around 12 o'clock, they bring you out. That's when Ayik met the Army's prison guard for the very first time. The guy responsible for punishing those who tried to escape. And his name was Anyang. Anyang was 16 years old. He was solid and he towered over Ayik. But I didn't take him as just, he's going to be a bad person. I thought oh, he's doing his job and he's probably going to punish us today. And that's it. First, Anyang put him in a hog tie. You know, your elbows are tied to your, to your ankles, you know, and you just on your chest. And you're in the sun, you know, lying in the sun. After a day of almost non-stop beatings, Anyang threw Ayik back in the prison. Ayik begged him for water. By the end of the day, Ayik was so thirsty that he had no choice but to drink his own urine. So what happened was escape, escape. That very same night, Ayik broke out of the prison and ran back to the refugee camp. I thought I'll disappear into the crowd and they wouldn't they'll forget about me because there's other hundreds of child soldiers coming from Sudan every night as refugee. They can go and take them and then I got caught again. So he tried escaping again, a third time. Some night, around three o'clock, I'll just go and climb the tree. Because when they come, they didn't know there'd be someone on the tree. Then a fourth time. And then again, the same guy with his group, come and get me, come and get me. And a fifth time. I came up with the plan that I used to sleep between the girls because when the rebel rock up in the morning, they're only looking for boys. They didn't take the girls. But each time Ayik was caught and delivered back to the prison camp and back into the hands of Anyang. 
every time I come back, it's him. And then he realized, this is the guy that don't listen. This is the guy who thinks he knows everything. So the punishments got worse. When the skin starts peeling off from your elbow or your feet, he'll rub chili in there. So he just had a hate for me. He hated me. At the time, he had a big boss ahead of him. You know, when his boss is there, fair enough. You can go as, as hard as you want. To some extent, Ayik knew that Anyang was just doing his job and following the orders. But then Anyang would torture Ayik and the other boys in the prison camp, even when the superiors weren't around. Every time he see me, he just, he just, he, 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 give, he punished me worse than any other person in that prison. I asked myself, yeah, why is he doing it? Is it for his own pleasure? Why? Why see other people like him suffer like this? Why is he doing it? There was an anger inside me. You know, all that time I became very angry. But that still didn't keep Ayik from that same cycle. Escaping, getting caught. Escaping, getting caught again. I, I, I lost track so many times. I lost track. Probably 15 to 20 times. And I thought, oh, they get sick of me and let me go. And that's why I keep doing it. But after a while, I just got sick of it. And I just said, there's no point. I might as well just give up. I stopped running. Ayik was eventually deployed and spent more than two years fighting with the Sudan People's Liberation Army. He finally got out when his sister, who was married to an army captain, managed to organise a passage for him to travel from Sudan into Nairobi, Kenya. When I came to Kenya, we just went to this hotel and I, I just felt so, you know, saved. It felt, nothing felt like that. I swear to God, I never felt like that. From there, they applied for resettlement. And not long after, they were on a flight to Australia. To get away, go somewhere where you can eat, you feel of your belly, you sleep peaceful, you're not going to hear weapon, you're not going to run. You, you know, I felt like this is it. This, this is a new life. I was very hopeful. Now, as a grown man, back at his apartment in Brisbane after the wedding... Ayik was pacing around his living room. To me, I felt like this is crazy. I said, why, why him to where I am? Some of my best friends live in America, Canada. Why not one of them? Why bring my enemy next to me? I, I thought of that. I thought about him so many times. Even though Ayik was living this new life in a new country at peace, these thoughts about Anyang and all the pain he inflicted on him, they kept coming up in flashbacks. It was like this movie rolling in front of his eyes that he just couldn't press pause on. Sometime when I was in the kitchen, because there were three of us in my family that, that used to cook for everyone, me and my sister and my cousin. Sometime when I was in the kitchen, I'll have look at these trays sitting in front of me of meat. Uh, my mind will start thinking, oh, okay, if you cut into that meat, you'd be like you're cutting into your nephew and nieces. All this thing, crazy thought come into my mind. Sometimes I'll just stick the knife in the steak and go to the park and then come back. And my sister will say, how come you didn't do that? I said, because I don't want to. 
I didn't want to tell her what I was going through. I didn't want to tell her that thing remind me of the war when I was a soldier. Ayik's life in Australia had not gone how he'd planned. He couldn't hold down jobs, he got a taste for drugs and booze, and eventually became a low-level drug dealer. I went through in Australia going to prison, having a fight with a girlfriend, having fight with the police, having fight with people at the pub. I was diagnosed as post-traumatic stress disorder. Sorry, Ruby. He says for almost a year he couldn't stop thinking about Anyang. So he had to keep reminding himself, he's not 13 anymore. He's not a child soldier. Anyang can't hurt him anymore. And then... I had a little boy. I had a child. I had my son. So I had something to live for. He called his son Freeman. And Freeman totally changed the way Ayik saw the world and his place in it. I mean, children, if you have a child, you think, you think different and not do things that you would do. And this man, Anyang, while still there, faded back into the recesses of his mind. So I was just trying to focus on myself. I've got a child now and I want to live. I want to move on with my life and I'm trying to find a career or something just to prove that, you know, I can do something with my life. And that's when he started pursuing his childhood passion. The first time I saw a movie, I was in the jungle. So what happened was that the bodyguard came with a TV. It was, it was just as big as a microwave. It was black and white. And I just see this white guy jumping out of the plane, doing all this crazy stuff. So when I came here, when I came to Australia, I tried to get to the bottom of it, how they make movies. And he got into acting. I was in a, a Scooby-Doo the movie. I was uh, in In Between Us too, which is a pomish movie. It's a comedy, sort of like In Between Us. Remember that movie? There's In Between Us 1, In Between Us 2. I was in that. One day, Ayuk was scrolling through Star Now, a website that matches producers and casting directors with actors and performers. He came across this call-out for a TV show called Look Me in the Eye, which would be broadcast on SBS all across Australia. The premise of the show was to reunite two estranged people by placing them in a room, where they'd look at each other in the eyes for five minutes to see if eye contact alone can bring people back together. Think long-lost father reuniting with his child or best friends coming back together after a fight, that kind of a thing. So what I did, I wrote to them about a guy who I helped save from a leopard. When I was a child soldier, we had a leopard that we were racing. That leopard got big. One day I attacked this guy and nearly killed him. So I helped save him from a leopard. And it'd be good to see him. A few days later, he got a call from the show's producers. They say, okay, you're telling us that you helped save someone from a leopard. Okay, and how did you get to have a leopard? I told them I was a boy soldier in Sudan. And, and then they told me, okay, who can prove that you were a child soldier? 
It had been more than 10 years since Ayik had seen Anyang in church that day. But at that moment, for whatever reason, Anyang was the first name that popped into his mind. I said, I didn't want to talk about it, but the guy that used to torture me, I ran into him uh, years ago in church. And they said, okay, so what did this guy do to you? I said, this guy was, uh, he ran the prison. He was the boss of the prison. And he tortured me when I was in the ward. As soon as he said those words, he knew what the producer was going to say. Of course, that's the story they wanted to hear. Not the one about a yik saving a boy from a leopard, but the one about Anyang, the man who had tortured him. We think this story is more powerful than that. I say, yeah, it's more powerful, but there's so much pain in that one. When the producer asked Ayik if he'd be willing to confront Anyang on national television, he wasn't sure what to do. He didn't know what to say. When we return, will Ayik go on national television to confront Anyang? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the wedding guest episode. This is a real story, an amazing story that recounts disturbing memories. And as such, listener discretion is advised. Now, Ayak was on the phone with a TV producer who wanted him to go on national television to finally look his childhood tormentor in the eye. Snap Judgment. We think this story is more powerful than that. I say, yeah, it's more powerful, but there's so much pain in that one. When the producer asked Ayik if he'd be willing to confront Anyang on national television, he wasn't sure what to do. He didn't know what to say. It was something that I've been keeping to myself, you know, like even the mother of my child, she didn't know much. She knew that I was a child, so but I never got into detail. So anyone, any close friend that knew me, they knew I was a child soldier, but not in detail. He also honestly wasn't sure what he was capable of, if he'd be able to control himself in front of Anyang. And I say, i got a boy now. If I snap, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something bad to this guy, then I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail. Ayuk told the producer that he had to think about it. And so he did. For weeks, he went back and forth about whether to confront Anyang on national television. And finally, one morning he woke up and decided that yes, he would do it. I decided to just go with coming face to face with Anyang because he's the only person that can tell me what he was thinking at the time, why he did what he did to me. I wanted to do it for myself because all these years I was in Australia with... It was like a ticking bomb. A few months later, Ayuk found himself on a plane to Sydney, where the show would be filmed. I just, I was just really nervous. That night, in his hotel room, he barely slept. It was just a mixed emotion, you know. I wanted to forgive him. At the same time, I, I was angry. When he woke up the next morning, he put on a pink shirt, 
khaki trousers and tan leather shoes. He was picked up from the hotel and driven to a large studio with polished concrete floors and bright lights. It's like a warehouse. It's huge. And in that studio, I got told there'll be two seats there. The show is set up so that participants sit facing one another, staring into each other's eyes for five minutes. After that, they have to make a decision. Either end the relationship there and then, or decide to talk and reconnect. I was shaky. Everything was a bit blurry. At this point, Ayik didn't actually know if Anyang would be turning up to the filming. The producers hadn't told him. It seems that, in true reality television fashion, they wanted Ayik to be in as much suspense as their audience would be in. You know, they say he's in, after a while, you get told he's in the building, but we're not sure if he's going to come or not. What about if he doesn't come? What are you going to do, Mr. Shoot? Eventually, a producer led Ayik to the centre of the room and sat him down in one of the chairs. The lights dimmed. The question of whether Anyang would turn up loomed large. When I heard the footsteps, someone coming, tick, 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 and then sat right, which is just about two metres or three metres in front of me. Ayik has his head down. Anyang, tall and lean, wearing glasses and a black suit, takes a seat in front of Ayik. He looks directly at him, and Ayik still has his head down. And then I look up, and there he was, Anya, sitting right in front of me, looking at me, looking at me. The first moment when I was looking at him, what I saw was the Anyang in the rebel, the Anyang, the prison guard, the boss. What came back to my mind was just what I saw when I was in Ethiopia, in the training camp. You know, just a blank face, just looking at me, just about to deliver his orders. It still looked the same as when I was in that dust on the ground, looking up at him. That's all I saw in his eye. I didn't see any sympathy. His eye was just so blank and just staring at me. Ayik looks away, but Anyang keeps a steady gaze on him. I was hoping to see some changes, face, you know, but I didn't see it. I was thinking, you know, I just think it's, it's, it's the same guy. It's the same person. It's, it's, people learn, grow and change, but I haven't seen any change. Suddenly, the lights brightened and the five minutes were up. Anyang was the first to stand up and walk out. But Ayik, he doesn't move from his chair. It's like the weight of those last five minutes keep him in the chair. Eventually, each man is directed into a separate room to consult with their producers. And Ayik had a decision to make. The eye contact was the beginning, but I wanted to know the way he was looking at me, what was what was in his mind, what was he seeing? Because what I was seeing there is hard to read. 
So you definitely want to go and you want to talk to him? Yeah, I want to talk to him. But, of course, reality television producers are kind of known for their pushiness, that sort of nothing-gets-in-the-way-of-good-TV kind of an attitude. Was that really a decision for you when you were kind of talking to the producer? Was there any chance that you wouldn't actually talk to Anyang after? I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk. And he wanted to talk too. Back in the studio, in their seats, Ayuk began asking questions. He says he ended up talking with Anyang for quite a while, but only a few minutes of that conversation was actually aired. The most tear-inducing minutes set to a dramatic, melancholic orchestra of strings and piano. Just just going back to the training, you know, you put me in jail a few times. There were a lot of other child soldiers there. I wanted to know exactly Did anybody, did you ever kill anyone in there? Whether it was a mistake or what have you done, I wanted to know. Yeah, actually, I I didn't kill anyone there. See, to be honest to you, I knew what I I did is something wrong. I, I understand the feeling in, in your, your heart because every single night when the memories come up, what I did, uh, it is there in my mind throughout. So when I revise what happened, I don't feel comfortable when I don't sleep. It hurt you and you went through it all these years. I knew it's still in your heart there, but please, what I'm asking you, can you forgive me? Let us start a new chapter of life, please. Ayik, please. Before I came here, you know, I went, I went mental. And then, When I was here, my life changed. (laughs) You say you're sorry, yeah? Yes. You're really sorry? Yes. I forgive you and I mean it. So I'm, I'm, I'm finished with this today here. Just to move on. And I wish you the best in everything you do, you know? Go on with your life and be good. Be good to everyone. But I have forgiven you. A breakdown. You know, like tears of, you know, someone who is angry, tears of someone who wanted to forgive. After that, he just couldn't take it anymore. I thought, oh, his past is catching up with him. So he just took off. He said, I have to leave. After embracing Ayik, Anyang says to him in Dinka, I'm going. I'm going. And walks out of the studio. Is that the last we've seen of Anyang? Find out 
when the wedding guest episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the wedding guest episode. My name is Kim Washington, and when last we left, Ayak had just confronted Anyang, the man who had been his tormentor for years as a boy, as a child soldier in Sudan. The meeting took place in Australia on national television. It had been tearful and emotional under the bright lights of a TV studio, but the moment was cut short when Anyang left the set. Snap judgment. After embracing Ayik, Anyang says to him in Dinka, I'm going. I'm going. And walks out of the studio. I'm wondering... Because I, I know that Anyang apologized to you on the show. He said, I'm sorry. A- and you said to him on the show that that you forgive him. I- I'm wondering, like, you know, did you really, did you really mean that? Because it feels to me, it feels kind of unbelievable that such a brief moment and something so public could kind of, I guess, lead to that. Some people say, I'll never forgive anyone like that. I, I forgive so I'll move on with my life because if I don't forgive, I'm the one suffering. I, I felt myself that to forgive is the only way to make me move forward. Hello? Hello? I, I young did. Ah, Yik, how are you, bro? <laughs> you be, hey, I tried to contact you a while ago because I was going to hang out with you, but you've been busy. Did you get my text? Yeah, but no, I, I, I didn't get your text, to be honest to you. Uh, no, it's all right. So how's the family anyway? Oh, that doing good, bro. A few weeks after the show aired, Ayik went searching for Anyang. He found his number through a mutual friend. He wanted to see him again. I just wanted to just get to know him as a person and see more about him, if he's changed. Is he really sorry for what he said on national TV, or does he mean it? So Ayik was really nervous that first time he dialed Anyang's number. And he couldn't believe Anyang's reaction. Anyang said, yeah, sure, come to my place, hang out. I went there, parked my car, walked to the unit. Uh, here's water, do you want tea, do you want coffee? Do you have a seat? At first it was mostly just small talk, but pretty quickly they started opening up to each other. And yeah, he talked about his own family, that he's got children, what he's doing with his life. And then we something just connects. And he says, oh, are you going to stay? I say, yeah, I want to stay here tonight. One night extended to two, and then three. I was sleeping at his house for a week. Every evening that week, Ayik would finish work, pack a bag, and drive to see Young. 
They shared meals. They watched TV together. I even learned his humour side. He's got humour, you know. Like, I felt like, like I was close to him. And from there, he said, bring your son. So I took Freeman there. Ayuk says that seeing Anyang with his son felt oddly natural, comfortable. It was just good to see him just hugging Freeman, walking, playing, like playing like it's kids play, you know, can you do this Freeman? It was, it was good, it was good. And it made me realise, OK, this guy has changed. He's not the same person he was back then. Eventually, Ayuk got up the courage to start asking Anyang questions about the war. He said he was a child too, and he was worried about his life if he doesn't do what he was supposed to do. And then I even told him, I said, if I was in your shoes, I would have done the same but not as bad. Anyang had his own anger that he was taking out of us. And I can't tell why, because... He said his father and mother were killed when the, when, the first, when the war first started. Maybe that's the anger that he took on to pass it on to us. He suffered himself in the war as well. I, I have a question for you, um, which is, so the show Look Me in the Eye, it sets up a kind of oppressor versus victim narrative basically where like Anyang's the bad guy and you're the good guy and and it makes the situation seem really black and white but I'm wondering you know what would you say to that because it, it does seem more complicated than just than just that maybe he was a victim but I don't know how bad he was who, who, who punished him like what he did to me that's why I see him as a bad guy, but a bad guy become a good guy. But Ayuk says that knowing this, knowing how Anyang also suffered during the war, it made him realise something. Because he's the only person I can talk to about the war, is Anyang. And at that moment, he knew that what he thought he'd come for, an apology, wasn't actually what he'd come for. I feel like he's the only one that knew about me when I was a child. The person I was, if I was good or bad, then he knows. No one knows. I, I don't even know what kind of person I was when I used to run that many times. But Anyang will tell you that 100% exactly what I, who I was. He was like a friend, but a, an enemy friend. I don't know if I'm making sense. So he knows me, he knows my personality back then, and he knows my personality now. He probably knows me better than anyone. Over the years, the two men have spent quite a lot of time together. But these days, it's more Ayik reaching out to Anyang. See, but I, yeah, we do talk, but I think he's going through a lot right now. That thing, probably him being through the war and all that has, catch, is catching up with him. Sometimes Ayik does reach him on the phone and they catch up like they used to. Uh, how are you doing, bro? I'm all right, and young man. It's just it's hard with the baby. That's about it. But everything is going. No, yeah, it's all yeah, right. Yeah, just struggling. Yeah, just struggling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah but every, yeah. everything will be all right. Everything will be all right. Do you know, uh, there's two things. Uh, yeah. To be alive is good, but living 
It's hot. So. Okay, yeah. okay. I like yeah. that. I like that saying. Yeah. That's part of the life, yeah. So. Yeah, when, when are you going to come from here? A very big, big, big thank you to Ayak Chutang for sharing his story with Snap Judgment. Ayak and Anyang are still in touch and they remain friends. That story is produced by Ruby Schwartz and edited by Nancy Lopez. Special thanks as well to Wendy Love. Now, there is no way we came even close to covering all of Ayak's story. You can catch Ayak on Harrow crime drama now airing on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC, he appears as a biosecurity officer. In between acting and parenting, Ayak has also managed to write a memoir. One of those stories in that memoir you may be familiar with called The Leopard Story, the one that those fancy TV producers in Australia turned down. Now, it's a bit graphic. Sensitive listeners are advised, but let's give you the chance to judge for yourself. I think it's going to take us back to his days as a young boy soldier in Sudan. When I was a child soldier, we had a leopard that we were raising. Somehow, some of the child soldiers went to the bush one day and found, found and brought a little cup, one of the cup home, and then we raised our cub. We tied the leopard under the tree and it got about maybe 10 meter rope. So he can, the leopard can climb on the tree to have a sleep there a night because hyenas attacked him a few times and then in the morning we'll come down and run around. Yeah, it was crazy because if a leopard attack you, that's it, you're dead because, you know, you'll die straight away and I used to worry about that. And then one day that leopard got big. One day I attacked this guy now. His name is Bula Guang. And the guy was coming, walking. We didn't see him walk. He walked past us but we're playing cards, some traditional stuff. And I was playing card like 15 meters away from where he was. All I can hear is just a guy screaming and the leopard on top of him. I load my gun and I ran toward the leopard. I was just about to shoot. One of the guys said, no, don't shoot, don't shoot. So what I did, we turned the gun around. I turned the back of my gun around and started hitting the leopard on the head. This leopard probably about 100, 100 kilos because we fed him too much. And by the time the leopard let go, the blood was pumping out of the guy's throat. Every time he was breathing, there's a bubble. So uh, one of the guy took a shirt and tied on his neck just to keep the blood in there. And then the guy was transferred to another, I think it was maybe an hour drive because we were... We were at this place where we only keep weapons, so there wasn't good doctors there. But if you drive an hour, there's United Nations there. There are real doctors, what you call white doctors. They're the one that can save him. So he got there. I never heard from him. I thought he was dead. Until three months or six months later, I ran into him, and he was alive. And I said, oh, you made it. He said, yeah, I made it. And I just couldn't believe it. But it was him. And I helped save him. And it's true, it's true, I swear to God. Even in the war, there's a lot of child soldiers who I'm friends with now 
here in Brisbane, Australia, when they tell me their stories, I get goosebumps. I shake, I shivered, you know, you know, because we all, every one of us got a story. So I thought if we tell my story, it might not be a good one, but some, I can learn from a funny story. I can learn from a bad story. We all got a story. Any story you learn something from. So if you want more stories from Ayak, check out his memoir, The Lost Boy. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for this piece and the entire episode was by Renzo Gorio. In fact, so many stories on Snap are scored by Renzo Gorio that we got to give him some love. He produces under the name Hydroplane and has a new album. It's called Rockets. It's out right now via a special collaborative released by Schematic and Neblina. Here's a taste of the first track called Rocketeer. latest track from our own amazing, irreplaceable in-house musician genius, Renzo Gorio. He goes by Hydroplane. From the brand new album Rockets, it's out right now. It'll be available digitally on vinyl and cassette. We'll have a link to Renzo's work at snapjudgment.org. Oh yes, we did it again. We got here together. If you missed even a moment, subscribe. The Snap Judgment Podcast. More stories, more music, more adventures await. If you want to join the conversation, follow Snap on the Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Don't miss a beat. Yes, there is swag. Snapjudgment.org. Yes, more stories. If you have a story you need to share with us? We'd love to hear it. 
send it to us. Pitches at snapjudgment.org. Snap is brought to you by the team that knows to run away from leopards, except for the producer, Mark Ristich, of course, Nancy Lopez, Pat Messini Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Goria, John Facile, Shayna Sheely, Teo DeCott, Flo Wiley, Marissa Dodge, and Regina Dariaco. Well, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, as a youngster, you would see your pet leopard attack a gun-toting militant and recount the incident. It's just an interesting childhood memory. And you would still, still, not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PR.